Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where me and my team of colleagues at Rethink Energy look at technology behind the energy transition. My name is Peter White. As usual, I'm joined by our hydrogen and wind analyst, Harry Morgan. Hello. And back from uh, his jaunt into the heart of Australia, we have uh, our solar specialist, Andres Wontanar, still there, but now back online. Hello there. And, uh, of course, our publisher, Simon Thompson. As ever. On the show today, we're going to take a second look at the discussion about what the US Department of Commerce is doing by investigating solar in uh, Malaysia, Cambodia, Vietnam and Thailand. And ask, is solar about to fall off a cliff in the USA? And we'll also be asking what happens if and when Russia cuts off the gas supply from various parts of Europe. And we may have time to take a little look at Elon Musk, the Tesla results, and his bid for Twitter. What does that all mean? If we can start off, Andres, with your little uh, homily about uh, the collapse of solar in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we we, we actually covered this last week. Well, not me because I wasn't here, but it seems like it's still a developing story. It's, It's a huge thing. The Department of Commerce's investigation into the solar imports from Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia and Thailand uh, and whether they are substantively Chinese and just dodging the tariffs which America put on Chinese imports. It, it just threatens 80% plus of, um, of America's solar market. That's where they get most of their modules. Now you have a situation where it's going to be a few months until the department announces a preliminary deci- decision. and. It could be longer to reach a final decision. And if they decide to put on these punitive or corrective tariffs on the source of almost all of America's solar modules, then you still wouldn't know exactly what the punitive tariff rate is for a couple of years after that, potentially. And they could be applied retroactively and they could be very high and it's making everyone panic. Yeah, I mean, most penalties can't be retrospective, Uh, you know, if you haven't made the law yet. But of course, if you've put in a kind of provisional tariff there will be uh, you know there there is already a tariff isn't there and if these turn out to be chinese that tariff could be applied so it's not retrospective legislation it's just catching up with people who cheated so so yeah it, this could be applied retrospectively um i suspect and that's what everyone's terrified of we don't they don't care if these countries are guilty of um, moving Chinese cells uh, into modules into the U- US, they they found a way of getting around the situation with uh, all Chinese um, uh, modules getting tariffed, and they they just want to stick with it. I mean, I don't know where. Does anyone have a moral point of view on this? Oh no, I I actually think it should be a um, a policy decision made by the elected government as to whether you allow certain imports or whether they get affected by protectionism. And it's it's actually strange that it should be left to a regulatory department to make this kind of decision affecting an entire industry. Especially when the World Trade Organization has kind of established rules upon, under which you can trade and they don't seem to be breached. Again, I keep coming back to this idea. You can only have dumping tariffs if somebody is dumping excess excess product into your market at below the costs it makes to manufacture them. Since the cost of manufacturing solar is plummeting constantly over a 20-year period, how do you judge that? You know, it's not like saying, oh, we're making, we're making cars and we're selling them cheap to get rid of our old cars or 
you know, that's not what's happening here. So the idea of having um, the World Trade Organization is supposed to stop countries like America blocking imports just because it harms uh, a handful of local suppliers who can't keep up. And it is, it's also kind of strange that this was brought in in 2012 and now it's, we're looking back to the original legislation or whatever it was from 2012 for the 2022 situation when so much has changed since then. I'll just go to like the, the big questions. No, I'll, I'll specify a couple of new things that have happened. I mean, the, the stocks of installers like Sunrun and Sunpower keep going down, including specifically in the past week. And now the SEIA says that there's 52 billion in investment at risk, which is also 50, 51 gigawatts of solar. So that's how big it's become now. Uh, also, it's affecting it's affecting st- storage, which is an up and coming industry. Yeah, and it's affecting over five gigawatts of storage bundled into that, yeah, hmm. which is my my turf. Yeah, but, but my question, I really have two questions, and I think you, Peter, are going to have a lot to say, even more than usual uh, in in relation to them. So there's this odd thing where I actually ignored this story when it first came out a whole month ago, and it seems like probably quite a few other people did as well because. During the Biden administration so far, you've repeatedly seen the Department of Commerce receive this kind of petition to impose a, a dumping duty on Indochinese solar and ignore it or dismiss it. The, the big one was you had the ASMAC co- coalition of anonymous American solar companies, solar manufacturers, we must assume, asking for such tariffs. And the Department of Commerce dismissed it. And now you have a new a more successful so far petition, which has been raised by Auxin Solar, which is a very small manufacturer. It is not significant. So who are they representing? Is it actually First Solar? No, no I, don't, I don't think First Solar is going to um, be manipulated Auxin Solar. What's their relationship? Well, I, I would assume there isn't one, or even a, even in generally speaking, there's a hostile uh, one because yeah. they're competitors. But I'm just saying, yeah, like, you have that you have that shadowy coalition at... that was anonymous. So who was that? Okay, okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. However, yeah, that is a good point because at the time, First Solar perhaps wasn't doing as well. Hmm. But the truth is that First Solar right now is uh, rubbing its hands together and taking order after order week after week, and it's having record order intake. And that's primarily because of the polysilicon crisis. And so it's in a period when it probably doesn't want to, doesn't need any other advantage right now. It's doing so well. So I'm not sure that it, um, it would initiate something now. But you're right, it could have been something it initiated previously, acting as a not so much a shadowy hand behind a, a smaller group, but just one of many members uh, of people that make solar in America who were concerned. I mean, let's face it, the, the likely outcome is that solar continues to drop the prices, uh, that China continues to drop the prices of solar globally over a long period of time until no one can keep up with them. And, and therefore, everybody else goes bust and everyone buys their panels from China. That's that's the um, that happens in a lot of industries. I mean, it really has happened in um, things like TV manufacture. But nobody really cares because if suddenly those prices start going up again, it's easy to set up a manufacturing base in your own country and uh, the technology is well understood and you can and you can reestablish some kind of local supply. It's just like polysilicon, it's not become worthwhile to stay in the game for most people outside of China. 
because the volumes are, are, are happening in China. It, so it, it, it's not catastrophic for, uh, for an, another economy to let solar panels all be made in China. Uh, it's only when, and people start talking about security of your energy supply. Well, once you've bought a solar panel, it's yours for 25 years and yeah, until exactly. it breaks. You know, it's not like, and if the politics change, you can change your supply routes. Uh, you know, it's not like you're constantly reliant on a fresh supply of solar every every minute. And if if another political situation like the Ukraine war happens, you're going to be, um, so, well, that leads on to the second story. You're going to be where Europe is with Russia. Mm -hmm. Um it's trying I, to I, I weaponize have, its, its gas supplies. Shall we move on to the gas supply? Because I do have one more question about the solar thing, if you, if you don't mind. Go on then, go ahead. Yeah. Which is, you've commented in some depth about American regulators before, and I'm just wondering what on earth is the Department of Commerce thinking when they do this? Is there what, What's the deal with, with them sabotaging the solar industry? It's a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, someone says, we're being competed with unfairly, and they look at the, the situation and they say, yeah, it's, it's true, it's happening. Or, mm. or there's enough evidence that we better look into it. And, and this is a case of it looking into it. They haven't found anyone guilty yet. They're, they're looking into it. I mean, let's f face it. Let's, let's take one view. What if China has deliberately, or, or not even deliberately, what if Cambodia and Vietnam and the others have deliberately said, this is an opportunity for us. We can set up supply lines into America. We can value our imports from China, ship them out, avoid the um, duties, and everyone's happy. What if that's true? What if that's true of nearly all the panels coming from that sector? Th then uh, that's politically a, a difficult situation because they have evaded um, the the import tariffs. You know, I would argue that import tariffs should never have been there in the first place, but... Uh, that's that's another matter. I mean, Europe. You got to remember, Europe was um, had a form of tariff uh, that ran till about 2018, where uh, it had a minimum price rule, so that um, you had to Chinese imports had to be sold at the same price as the menu, the, the, the um, solar panels that could be made in Europe. As a result, the the falls in costs of solar panels were not appreciated in Europe. And it took several years to uh, overthrow that. And even though the European Parliament had said, no, no, that's not good, let's get rid of that, European Commission said, we're not going to. Um, we're going to wait until there's a full vote. And we're not going to allow you to get rid of it. And it took two years in abeyance. So Chinese panels, when you talk about countries like Spain uh, taking off again in solar, part of the reason that they uh, went into their shell in the first place was were duties. Tariffs are a bad thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you look at another, another big solar market that's doing tariffs and protectionism, which is India, the obvious comparison. What India did was the central government decided to bring in the tariffs. They said, we're going to do it in the future. They, which they now have at the start of this month, they gave a grace period with no tariffs at all before the higher tariffs so that people could stock up with three times the usual volume. They brought in manufacturing subsidies. And so it may not be the right decision for India to have protectionism on its solar manufacturing industry, but at least they did it in a coherent manner. In the US, it's like, it's just out of the blue. A department, a regulator just threatens the, the imports. Meanwhile, the 
uh, the government has not been able to pass the manufacturing subsidies because they're tied up in that budget reconciliation that Mansion blocked. I just thought it, it, it's just kind of it's weird. It's almost weird to see such. Yeah, a, well, it's it, it, hmm. it's called democracy, and it's not always perfect. If you want to get a, a rule through, get more votes. You know, control control the Senate. And if America can't make up its mind which party it wants in charge of the Senate, it's going to have a lot of hung um, decision-making like this. Mm. And that's really a matter of the voters being clear on what they find important. And at the moment, they say they're knee-jerk over jobs. We want jobs. And so if you put this to a, a referendum in America, most people, without thinking or learning about it, would say, yeah, yeah, back, back these solar people. That's good. We don't want uh, cheap, cheap Chinese imports. And then they'll be waiting for years and years to build the capacity. Yeah, and then and then even even their manufacturing industry will be slaughtered because you, you'll lose 18,000 jobs in balance of system employees being shut down. Um, that's one of the calculations the SEIA came up with, yeah. So, so the manufacturing industry is actually suffering more job losses than we could possibly support if, with a successful um, solar uh, cell-making operation. Um, and so uh, the commerce is, department is not, not just getting rid of installers who can't do this. Who, who they might say, oh, that's a temporary profession, although it's, it's been going for 20-odd years. Um, but they're actually getting rid of manufacturing at the same time. So it's, um, it's always beyond me. I've always found tariffs a bit difficult. One of the things, I always come back to my favourite policy, the carbon, the carbon border tax. Um, it serves, it does a double purpose that, that if time you've shipped those tariff, those panels all the way from China to the US and you've put them on a, uh, a ship that has uh, many times, uh, that has lots and lots of CO2 production, if you punish it through CO2 production, then quite clearly what's happening is um, you're raising the cost of doing that business. So you've got an opportunity then to manufacture in your own country. We're going to be like this for a long time. If, if there are parts of the world where they can have really cheap labor, make things really cheaply, manufacturing is going to be almost sold off to uh, the, the, the lowest bidder. And that's not really, uh, that's not really in anyone's interests. So what about this gas thing? I, I feel like if I had written this this gas article about Poland and Bulgaria, the tone and the title and everything would have been quite different. So what's happened, Harry? Yeah, no, I'd be interested to get your take on that as well, Andrew. Uh, but so, yeah, essentially what's happened this week is, is that we've seen Russia stop providing gas to both Poland and Bulgaria. And this happened yesterday, so Wednesday. And it's probably the biggest retaliation we've seen from Russia to Western sanctions so far. So what... Russia um, was basically asking for was for unfriendly countries, as it's calling it. So essentially countries that have imposed sanctions throughout its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's asked them to pay for uh, gas imports using uh, rubles rather than uh, either euros or dollars. The reason it's done that, obviously, is due to the fact that rubles are much harder to sanction. Uh, obviously, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Russian assets have already been frozen in other currencies and amounting to around half of the country's foreign reserves. It's also quite, it's come at quite an interesting time as well, because it's come at a time where Russia 
Firstly, they're, they're obviously struggling with the, with this invasion of Ukraine. It's been a lot more difficult than Putin first anticipated. Um, obviously, I can't imagine he'd have thought that he'd still be um, battling over these territories in late April coming into May. But it also comes at a time when Russia is actually at quite a large strength in terms of its oil and gas exports. Obviously, we've seen the volumes of his exports falling significantly. But in terms of the revenues they've made from exports over the past two months, they've actually doubled to 62 billion euros, led by countries like Germany, uh, even the UK has actually been pay, uh, paying quite quite a lot more than they usually would for Russian oil and gas. And Russia have found themselves in this weird position where announcing these things like stopping Russia, gas going into Russia and Bulgaria, it means that prices actually go up. So while they're selling less to Poland and Bulgaria, which together account for around 8% of the EU's imports, uh, they'll actually probably end up making more money due to the fact that gas actually rose by around 17% uh, on the announcement that they were going to stop buying the gas to those countries. But that that would just be a temporary thing. Um, it's as temporary as the, the 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 hike in prices, and at the moment we're obviously still looking at prices that are going to be through the roof. And I think this is the the, the tone of the article as well is is very much that Russia have probably left it too late in terms of actually, I suppose, punishing Poland and Bulgaria for for not paying for gas and rubles. Poland itself, while it normally depends on Russia for around forty five percent of its uh, gas imports. It's actually a pretty good place to to start moving away from Russia. So, I mean, it's it's natural gas storage is seventy six percent full, so that's around two point five billion cubic meters, which can account for around a quarter of what it normally gets from Russia in a year. Uh, it's also got a an LNG terminal in the Svinnytsia uh, uh, region on the Baltic, as well as sort of while it's exploring uh, other gas imports from Germany and the Czech Republic. We've got a pipeline that was going to be inaugurated, uh, connecting it to uh, Norway's gas fields that will start in October, and it's actually also starting to receive more gas weirdly coming from Germany actually so there's actually quite a big chance that Russian gas will still flow to Germany and then flow back to Poland um, and obviously that's not something that Russia is going to be able to track. There's a, there's a really weird thing I, I was uh, that I, I saw which is that the Bulgarian pipeline Turkstream was only completed in 2019 I mean don't quote me on that exactly but that was completed recently obviously Nord Stream 2 was completed uh, in late 2021 physically and it's it's so strange that the Ukraine conflict started in 2014. Putin has been, been in power since 1999 or something. And people just carried on using building these pipelines. Uh, but then suddenly, oh, no, uh, we don't like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We don't like Putin. We're going to sanction them. So, so it's like, why did they build these pipelines in the first place? It, it's so sort of baffling. I mean, Nord Stream 2 is $11 billion just sitting there, not being used. It's quite... It is really interesting, and we've got we've got this um, this interesting sort of period where obviously pipeline agreements were made sort of prior to twenty fourteen and prior to um, Russia's annexation of Crimea. And I think at that point it became quite potent in Europe that they had to probably move away uh, from Russian gas. I mean, Bulgaria actually has also got a a new gas pipeline with Greece coming online later this year. Again, trying to reduce Russian imports, and there and especially in. Bulgaria and Poland, their efforts to move away from Russian gas and move away from Russian oil probably really does predate the invasion of Ukraine. The interesting thing now is what what happens from here. So yeah, that's the that's the big thing that we have to ask about. Is is sorry to butt in like that. Is that you know Poland is quite important. Bulgaria it isn't uh, partly because it's a smaller country, partly because its dependence was much lesser. So really, Poland, but even Poland by itself is not the biggest one. We need to ask about Italy. And Germany. Does this yes. make it harder now? Because hmm. it is really, you know, you, you kind of, one of the ways that my tone would have been a bit different is that you, you sort of presented this as Russia cutting the taps, which is true. It was Russia's decision. 
But they did that in response to a Polish and Bulgarian decision to not pay in the way they wanted. Hold on, hold on. No, no, there are con contracts here. There are contracts that have been in place for a long time, and they specified yeah. the payment currency. So it, it's definitely a breach of contract triggered by Russia. It's not a breach of contract of, you know, it's not, it's not just a matter of convenience. You try buying rubles. Nobody wants them. Uh, okay, you can get them cheap. As soon as you start wanting them, uh, the, their price goes up. Um, no one's, nobody wants rubles, and nobody wants to have to find them. Dollars are, are a universal currency. Exactly, and I think that's exactly what what the whole point of what Russia's doing here is in, in terms of trying to push uh, these gas contracts towards the rubles. The interesting thing, as you were saying, Andrew, is looking starting to look towards Germany and Italy, which are the two countries which really will define uh, how successful Russia are in in weaponizing this sort of energy supply. They so their their key stakeholders really are well, I mean, it's Uniper in Germany and it's Eni in Italy, the oil major. So. There, and while we've seen, obviously, parties in Poland and Bulgaria fail, well, fail to meet the, the new contract agreements, so they adjust the contracts I mean, for rubles in April, refuse to meet them. Uniper and uh, Eni have got contracts that they're going to have to try and fulfil in May. So that's when, when they've said that these payments are expected. And it's at that point that we'll know whether or not they're going to pay in rubles or if they're going to try to continue to pay in, in euros and dollars. I mean, Uniper has set, said that it, it still believes that it will be able to pay in rubles. Uh, and that it, at that point, it won't be uh, contradicting any of the sanctions made by Europe. I mean, the, the same has been said by countries like Hungary and Slovakia that uh, are likely to do the same. But it's I I, I can't imagine really that Unipro are going to be able to get away that from a sentimental perspective in Germany, um, especially with um, Olaf Scholz now at, um, at the helm. So I think that is going to sort of define the success of this. And I think that will be the real tipping point on whether or not the Russia actually can weaponize these things, but I think what's really just going to happen here is, is if and we, as we've been saying all along, it's just going to accelerate the development of renewables in in Europe. I mean, yeah, that, that's what we should really get along to as, as rethink energy. Is what does this mean for renewables? It just means more. Yeah, exactly. Faster, doesn't it? And there is, I mean, there is, there is. Obviously, you've got your things like there'll be more oil and gas coming from the US and Qatar. There'll probably be some extension to coal and gas, but yeah, the, the key victor here really will be renewables. I mean, the expected. 40 gigawatts of solar power capacity and 20 gigawatts of wind power capacity to be installed this year is going to replace around 20 billion cubic metres of natural gas in Europe alone. Um, tripling capacity to 2030, as many people are calling for, would displace Russian imports entirely. So I think those are the, the measures that we're really going to see accelerated. Yeah, and it, it, it's uh, harder hopefully for us, with a new focus on onshore wind. And it's harder for to, to replace heating, isn't it, compared to just replacing a nuclear plant with a gas plant, uh, a gas plant with a solar plant, right? It is. Um, but but there's plenty of gas plants to replace. There are plenty of gas plants to replace, and I think that's the first thing to notice, and it's the cost of electricity as well. Obviously, a big move towards heat pumps. I mean, uh, I think something like 30 million heat pumps could save 35 billion cubic metres of natural gas per year. Things like reducing thermostats by one degree in terms of intensity could save around 10 billion cubic metres of natural gas, and a lot of that can be achieved really easily by insulation measures. And realistically, we're at a point where this is an economic incentives sort of in the immediate term. Obviously, natural gas prices went up 19% on Wednesday due to uh, this announcement of Poland and Bulgaria being cut off by Russia. So it's, I mean, the time to do it is now. And what we need to see is these governments not doing what the UK did and, and announcing a nuclear strategy for 2040. But we need to see them announcing onshore wind strategies for the next year or so, new, lease, uh, new on, uh, land leases. We need to see them announcing uh, measures to insulate homes and improve their energy security. I, I'd just like rather. to... 
just just change the direction at a moment. I'd just like to take us back about four four years when um, President Trump was in power and uh, the French refused to buy LNG from America. And it was largely because Trump was seen as just a difficult person to get along with as Putin. Politically, if you go back in time, you suddenly found us being very sentimental and very positive about a reformed Russia who wasn't killing so many people these days because the contrast was with Trump. And we ended up with France in particular signing an, an extra contact contract with Gazprom when um, when they were offered the same um, through through uh, European suppliers linked to America politics changes very fast and you, you this is a, a master stroke by Biden to suddenly get to, to suddenly get a much stronger supply of oil and gas and have him a bit of a hero in the oil and gas industry over there because the money is flowing to America rather than Russia. I mean, obviously, places like Qatar and Algeria have helped, but 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 that that's that's one thing. The second thing I'd like to point out is Russia is bluffing. It cannot send all this gas to China. China wants as little extra gas as it needs, and if it could make more gas, it would, and it will, and it'll eventually unhook itself from um, from gas. So Russia switching to China is just you know sending its it's going to be selling far less. These are firing opening shots at Bulgaria and Poland because they're not Germany, because they're not the main supply, they're not France, and they're not Italy. But once it starts to go into Italy, Germany and France, he cuts those off. He cuts off virtually all of his um, dollar revenue stream. What's so, he going to do? I'm curious, do you think that Russia... Uh, what, what, why do you think Russia is cutting off these um, these gas supplies? Because my suspicion is that they don't like being paid in dollars or whatever else, euros, because they worry that it'll get confiscated. Uh, and it, that, 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 that is true. So that in that case, true. it's not really their choice. Like, they're not going to give it to us for free. I think it's partly that, and I think the reason for now is because is is largely just because they can. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. I think it is because they've received a huge amount of uh, revenue from their oil and gas um, in the past few months, and that realistically, a little hit from Poland and a little hit from Bulgaria isn't going to be a huge dent in their in their revenue streams. Um, I think Germany is yet yeah, where it it hinges, and I think while. I think I think at the moment it's just a lot of shots being fired, and it's to try and stop the West sanctioning Russia even further. Um, I think it's like to try and stop. He's probably subtextually trying to stop uh, Europe actually getting engaged on a military front in terms of uh, having personnel on ground in Ukraine. I think it's yeah, it's it's an, it's going to be an interesting few weeks in terms of seeing what Germany does because um, Unip have made it clear that they're very keen to pay in rubles, but mm. the, whether or not the German public are happy with that, um, and, and, and if they won't let that happen. And if Poland is getting supplied from Germany lots of, by Russian gas through Germany or through some weird arrangement, then actually when we say Germany, we mean Germany and Poland and everywhere else that gets the gas cut off up to Germany getting the gas cut off. And I, I, I mean, I, I've always said that, oh, they won't, Europe, and Europe surely won't sanction its own fuel supply because that hurts both parties. And then I was proven wrong, mostly, um, still not completely. So do you think that Europe will eventually go all the way? 
Cause... I think um, if you if you if we see the things to look out for now are European gas storage. If we see Germany successfully, I mean, gas storage across the block, while it's really high in Poland at the moment, high, around seventy, I think I said seventy six percent across the block is only around thirty percent. So I think when you see countries really building this up, it's a it's a mark that they're ready to suddenly go hard against Russia and they're ready to actually say no, we've got our buffer in place, we can. We could run on our own gas for six months while we look for alternative agreements and while we install uh, X, Y, and Z to actually reduce our dependency on Russia. So that's that's going to be what is going to be interesting to see from Germany, whether or not they're taking those steps. And that would give a Russia a motive to cut it, uh, the supplies back to some extent I, now as well. Exactly. I think I don't think either either side is going to want to lose face in this. Um, I think um, um, Russia are going to try and assist to get the rubles in the payments in May from Uniper, and Germany are going to try and stand firm and say no. So. Uh, and I think realistically, it, it, this is where things could start to escalate, and Russia could suddenly then turn off the touch to Germany, and it and it will it will be chaotic across Europe in terms of um, the rise in gas prices and the cost of living. But I think that's something that potentially Europe are going to I won't say take on the chin, but they could definitely. I think it's something that Europe will consider um, to try and bring sort of solidarity in, in the fight against Russia and. Um, actually but the elephant in but the elephant in the room here is nuclear holocaust. You know, and that's what he's relying on. He's he's saying he's done a demonstration of a new missile, which can get here a lot quicker, and over, it can go over, over the South Pole, the, can't it? Well, they all they all went, always went over the the pole, but not not the South Pole as as the North Pole. I, I, I thought. Yeah, well, um, I think this one goes over the South Pole and therefore dodges all the air defenses in, on the north side. I mean, that's just something I heard. Maybe it's not correct, but uh, no, I don't. I don't, I don't <laughs> do you think? That, that do you think there is a connection? Norad is in the south. Yeah, no, it's 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 all posturing or. He's totally mad. If he's totally mad, we're worrying about the wrong thing. We should be worrying about nuclear war. Uh, um, if this is posturing, we should not. I mean, we're going to get to the stage where, hold on, he's cut, he's ruined our, our supply of energy in Europe. Uh, the economy is in our economy is now in bad shape. What? Why did we not? Why did we not invade Russia? You know, everyone's going to be saying we might just as well have done because we're on the <laughs> brink. Um, and the next thing you know, you know, we, we'll be a, a, on a war footing. It's, it's you can't have a war or or a, a political disagreement where only one side can bluff because the others are too nice. Um, he, he he's bluffing. He he would ruin the economy of Russia forever if he tried to switch off all the taps for Europe and try to get all that sold to China. Let's put yourself in China's shoes. So you've got a lot of spare gas on your hands. We want gas. Can we have it at half price? Yeah, and, and next thing you know, the, the Russian economy is uh, is tanked. And it's already tanked. And do you think you can really support a war until it gets cold again in Europe? You know, it's got to be October. Yeah, that's an interesting thing is that I think Ukraine and Russia have about the same amount of troops deployed russia has more artillery so it's it's russia putin decided on this highly aggressive action of invading a nation of 40 million 30 million people but then he's only deploying as many people as they are and it's sort of and they withdrew from around kiev and i mean logically russia has three times the population Look, it could deploy everybody has has watered down their military everyone wants to put the military is a cost uh, defense budgets have been watering down since World War Two. Nobody wants to have to pay for an excessive military. Russia it, as well. 
And if you if you can replace it with arms instead of people, you can fight with a lot less people with a lot more power. And the moment a, a, an aircraft sympathetic to Ukraine flies over where they're shelling from and blows them up, the war's over. The only edge they've got is standing too far away and th- and throwing missiles at places, and that's caused devastation. As soon as you change that footing by selling planes to the Ukraine, uh, he either goes nuclear or he doesn't. If he doesn't, the country's over. Well, the the perception I have is that the nuclear threats are to deter NATO, a direct NATO intervention. Because Russia has no, extremely good air defences. All the time. He keeps saying, if you keep supplying weapons to Ukraine, if you keep doing this, if you keep doing that. And and they're all, all being translated. It's interesting how the Western uh, news media are able to take those translations and broadcast them to people. But Russian citizens are completely unaware of their existence. Well, one thing's for sure, the Russian solar industry and wind industry isn't going to go very far now because they've got even more gas than they had before and they've got (laughs) probably less economic activity. (laughs) So that market isn't going to be coming alive. Although they could still import solar modules at least. Okay, so what does everyone think? Just we're not going to solve the war while, you know, uh, over over lunch. So um, what does everyone think of the idea that uh, the surprise... Uh, leap by Elon Musk to to buy Twitter for forty four billion dollars. I mean, I think it's, it's in theory quite. I think the theory is quite it's quite scary. Um, I mean, um, the idea of Twitter being run in a completely unregulated way, obviously, from an energy perspective and from a climate denial perspective, Twitter was a huge catalyst in um, actually spreading climate denial information. So, whether or not there's any return to that um, in a uh, system that's not sort of fact checked. Um, in terms of climate information, I think that's potentially quite damaging. Um, but yeah, it's, well, it was. Would, a, it's, why would someone who's a climate uh, supporter with huge climate ambition allow that to happen? He seems to truly believe in free speech. I think that's the thing. I don't think this is anything to do with his Tesla ambitions. I think obviously this is this um, this Twitter uh, acquisition is um, part of his own agenda to to keep free uh, free free speech and to. Put a, put a hold on what he's calling censorship in the media. I'm, I'm not someone who's followed Elon Musk a huge amount, but he's he's this kind of scientist, engineer type person, and they very often are free speech idealists. I think he probably is really that kind of person. And apparently, apparently he got annoyed that the Babylon Bee got banned from Twitter, and that's just a sort of mildly right wing satire joke account. So I think that's really what it is about. I, but I guess it'll benefit, uh, if it benefited anyone unfairly, it would be the, the Tesla Corporation. But I don't think he'll be doing that. I'm not sure how relevant this even is to energy. But but like you were saying, Peter, it, it was a distraction from Tesla's results, which were also very interesting. Yeah, well, the thing about... Um... It's the share price of Tesla is immediately reflected. Um, whether you thought it was going to be positive or negative news to investors in America, it was taken as negative. There was a hiccup on the day in the share price. It dropped. Um, not not dramatically, but it, it dropped. It's already recovering because it's a, it's a blue chip and people put their money, they park their money in, in Tesla. Um, so it's only a, a very localised change in uh, the temperature of uh, of what the investors think about tesla what what i think is really worrying 
about Tesla is the fact that he was always thinking that the $25,000 car was going to be when everyone can afford a um, electric vehicle and it was going to come out in 2023 it's it was it was um he killed it one quarter ago and said no we're not even working on it anymore because the price of traveling is going to come down so much when there's a robo taxi and we've almost got one and now he's announced that they're working on a physical car design uh, built around the model 3 which is a robo taxi so it doesn't have a steering wheel it doesn't have any accelerator or brake pedals it's com- controlled entirely electronically in the the belief that he can sell these in volume from day one uh, when they go to volume um, starting in uh, i imagine in small numbers in 23 but he's talking about volume in 2024 i can't imagine that happening i can't imagine it being legal i can't imagine it getting the licenses i can't imagine it getting licenses outside of america and i can't imagine it being a success but he's considered a genius so everyone now assumes that everything he touches that he's king midas and and that everything he touches turns to gold and everything he's touched in the past has not turned to gold so you know geniuses have their successes and their failures the same as all of us and i'm i'm just wondering if and and then he goes oh but the robo taxi or full self-driving it's going to make me richer than you know it's going to be more valuable than tesla is today and the optimus um robot is going to be even more valuable you guys just don't understand it well it's great when a genius says that, and often they don't understand it, but you guys that he's talking about are the ones that have got to buy it and live with it. And I can't see America, who's passionate about jobs, being passionate about a robot that eliminates jobs. So, you know, come 2024, we'll have that as well. So I I, I think he's close to going off the rails. <laughs> I think. I mean, they... How many different businesses has he gone into now it's what car insurance ev cars robotics probably some kind of ai uh, solar installations uh, flying to mars twitter <laughs> you know spacex uh, so he seems unfocused and and you've been very complimentary about him before so is this no, now- I, I'm, I'm not complimentary about him that's hmm. that's a mistake when i see things like the battery day and I see the approach they've made to battery. When you look at it in more in a wider context, he's decided that he has the market weight to change the format and the direction of battery design and to use that to the advantage of Tesla and to, to pull the whole market with him. And he's then gone about it in a very methodical way. And he's taken designs that were half formed in other people's minds and he's come up with a a concrete strategy and he said it you know it will be this way and that's a good strategic move great strategic move uh, it's a bit like when um, uh, steve jobs at apple bought 35 percent of the world's flash memory and he took his um his little ipods from being uh, weighing a ton you couldn't fit them in your pocket to being uh, uh, much lighter and much easier to carry around with you by buying up 35% of the world's flash memory. And, uh, and and he did it by pledging nearly all the money that Apple had at the time. Those type of strategic moves are a business uh, genius. But it's, it's a matter of saying, 
at this point in time with my company and the, and the people that follow it, I can get away with this. Um, and those are great moves, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that therefore every decision he makes is genius. However, if you do it after breaking all the targets that you set yourself and you do it in a time when semiconductors were largely not available and when battery costs were going up um, and you still grow the business by 50% uh, over this time last year, you've got to say it's it's work, the plan's working. And in the same way that we always said that Apple has lost all of its innovation, I, what I kept forgetting was, yeah, but they still sold more iPhones this quarter than they've ever sold before. And that and that's the bit that keeps them in business. And the bit that's keeping him in business is we still sold more cars than we, we did before. And I wonder, actually, if, if he's carrying favor with the Republicans ahead of a Republican victories with the Twitter thing. Do you think they'll support him and some of his, free, his um, green energy agenda? Well, certainly Biden hasn't supported him. And I think that's a clear message through through his tweets. And we you know, saw Ron DeSantis um, support um, net metering in Florida this week. He's supporting net metering or supporting getting rid of it. Oh, I think uh, I think it was supporting you know protecting it from an an attempt to sabotage it. Okay, which you'll write about next week, I believe. Indeed, okay. yes. <laughs> okay, yeah, and and so I don't I don't know. I mean, it's very difficult to be expert on American politics from outside of America. I've lived there, and I have seen um, that both reasonable people and non-reasonable people support both sides, and it's it's not uh, opaque. Europe is is much more socialist than um, any Americans, and so it's very difficult to get a view when you've grown up in and around Europe. Um. But I mean, I don't think he would try and curry favour. I think he's he, he likes the short term hit. He likes saying what he says. That's why he's got so many followers on on Twitter. Say something outrageous now, move on. And he's not he's not planning for the future. The only thing he's planning for the future are the technologies. Um, and if he proves everybody right, uh, everybody um, wrong about full self driving his star will rise even further. And if he introduces the, an Optimus robot and it re revolutionizes manufacturing in America, um, the share price will be out. I think I said, I ended the piece by the share price will fly higher than a SpaceX rocket. It, it, it will. So you can't blame him for trying. Imagine you want to set up a factory um, doing polysilicon, you want to set up a factory um, putting together solar panels and you've got uh, a bunch of these Optimus robots and you've bought them, uh, not cheap, but, you know, uh, on a, an initial uh, issue from Tesla and suddenly you find you can make as many, you can make up all that distance between solar manufacturing in China and America and you can bring it, bring it all home. Um, if some if stuff like that starts happening because he introduces a robot, well, um, what we've got to remember is we've had robots for years. There was an advert for Fiat cars in 1979, hand built by robots, and uh, and that's that's what the car industry has been doing for many many years. So his his interest in robots is natural, and he's not the only uh, robot expert in the world. Uh, Simon, have you got anything for us? 
Yes, well, it was an energy technology item that caught my eye this week. And it's about uh, the, the two turb wind turbines. And it's a double uh, turb uh, off a floating offshore wind double turbine uh, from... A, a yeah, Harry, Harry, I thought that was a cracking article. I mean, I, I've, I've followed Hexagon for the last four or five years. Um, and I hadn't considered a lot of those design issues that you that you raised in, in the piece. And... I, and it really opened my eyes. I thought it was a great article. Hexcon, yeah. It's, I think it's a really interesting technology because it's not a... Um, it, it's very much... It's got its pros and cons, and I think it's... Um, no one's really sure to what extent it's going to innovate the market yet. Um, so essentially, for those who don't know Hexcon, it's essentially... It's a con fairly conventional floating wind platform uh, in the sense that it's semi-submersible. The big difference is that it hosts two wind turbines on the same platform. Obviously, the the benefit from this that you think initially is that tw twice the number of turbines, twice the energy output. Um, that's not necessarily the case based on the fact that they're actually going to be incredibly close together and that the turbulence that each of them causes uh, will actually re significantly reduce the uh, energy output. I mean, these turbines are, I suppose, almost touching when, they're when the tips are near to each other, whereas typically wind turbines have to be around uh, seven times their rotor diameter apart. Yeah, but they're facing the same direction. So does that not make... I mean, you know, the turbulence is almost misses the other one because it's already gone. Uh, somewhat, but there still is some... Uh, the, the blockage effects are still the same. So in terms of the blockage, that's basically where the wind behind the turbine slows down and has to be forced somewhere. So you do end up with some sort of backdrafts. You end up with some sort of updraft as well from the actual turbine spinning upwards, which will, which creates uh, turbulence around the turbines on sort of a local level. So it's not... Um, uh, it well obviously the upstream and downstream turbines are the spacing is very important it does also matter sort of in a lateral perspective as well um but if, but if you're pulling it on a single central mooring point and it turns with the direction of the wind um you, you're um you're you're gaining uh you, you're you're able to install two for the price of one in a single platform you're gaining your your costs of deployment must go down dramatically yeah, so that's the that's the real benefit. So it packs more generation capacity per floating foundation. So obviously, it means you only need one floating foundation. You need far less uh, sets of cabling. Um, uh, you can you can you only need one sort of installation period. So obviously, you're building it on with these with these units as well. You build them on shore, on shore or at port side, and you actually tow them out. Um, so you need to do that once. So actually, the installation costs are far far lower. Um, but the, the the real sort of crossover is whether or not the drop in output from the turbines, because they're sort of packed so closely together, makes it actually worth the um, the, the cost savings. So whether or not I'm going to make a bet with you. I'm going to make a bet with you. I bet you the dropping costs are uh, end up as a saving. I bet you it becomes a lowering in price. The problem is you've got to get someone to fund the first installation, and for that you've got to provide proof that this isn't at a disadvantage and it's that proof that's going to take the time yeah well i suppose you say it's taking the time they're looking to have the first uh, installation on, online next year in um in norwegian waters they've got deals for uh, projects in the uk they've got um in both england and scotland in separate projects uh, they've set up several joint ventures they've got a joint venture in sweden with acre offshore wind one in uh, the iberian peninsula with uh Vundersite, um and I mean, the, the big news this week was that they signed one in uh, in Greece. Uh, so obviously, these are huge potential floating wind markets. And obviously, markets where fixed-based offshore wind isn't necessarily an option due to deep waters. So 
I think in terms of actually demonstrating the technology, this is it's going to be the next few years really where we see the range of floating offshore wind designs that we've seen, we'll see them really tested. And I think the, cons the consolidation that we're expecting uh, really will come from then. I mean, there's still around sort of 20 to 30 um, designs for floating wind turbines um, or floating wind platforms rather out there. And I think realistically, looking at how the wind market has sort of consolidated so far in terms of sort of things like gearing and actual turbine design, uh, we could expect that to fall down to sort of five or six. And to be honest, I think Hexcon are one of the favourites. And obviously, we've got Principal Power as well. We've got um, Fukushima coming out of Japan and IDR. I mean, Principal um, Power definitely are a favourite because of their connection to the oil industry and the oil platforms they've built in the past. And they, I, I think when I spoke to Principal Power last, which was a couple of years ago, I think they, they were, a, were of the opinion, whatever anybody else can do, we can do. And if someone puts two turbines on their platform, we can put two on ours. That's um, so it. And, if Hexagon comes up trumps, then, then everyone will follow. Yeah, and I mean, Hexagon have uh, have patented their system somewhat, but it's it's not quite clear yet how rigorous those patents are in allowing other floating wind developers to put two turbines on a single platform. Um, I think <laughs> I don't think that's patentable. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and, it's how you good... do it. It's how you do it. Uh, you know, and also uh, a patent defense like that is going to take forever to work through the system, and it, and it normally ends up with, well, fine, you you can license the patent for this much. You know, you can't just say you're not allowed to copy my design. That's not what patents are for. It's for somebody who invents something that's truly original, being able to get paid for that thought process, well, not not to not to block um, people from using it. Yeah, and another thing, and this I probably should have mentioned this slightly earlier, that is a slight issue with the Hexcom turbine is the fact that having two turbines on one installation means that if one, especially in in, in the Hexcon have, so Hexcon have said that their turbines aren't going to have your bearings, basically. So the turbines themselves aren't going to rotate. They're going to basically rely on uh, the mooring to basically rotate based on the incident wind so that then uh, the two turbines are facing upwind. Um, the issue with that is obviously if one of the units fail, then you're going to have this asymmetrical load and essentially the turbines are going to basically rotate around this mooring point. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I saw that point. What you do is you have one pair in dock and you tow it out to where the failed pair is and you tow the other one back to dock and you've got the same amount of energy immediately because you've got a spare pair and you have a spare pair because the costs of installing it without the ability to turn have come down so far that you can afford spare um, spare spare ones in dock. Yeah, and obviously I suppose that level of redundancy would be a great thing to get to, but again, it's whether or not developers are happy to have a turbine that they're wasting, just sitting in deck and not doing anything. I mean, offshore wind turbines typically have an availability as low as 90% anyway, um, so obviously if you've got two on a single th on a single um, platform, that bring that could bring that down to around 80%. Um, and obviously then if, you do, if you're going to have one offshore, then you've got to take the net impact of having one that's out of action for basically 100% of the time. So that, that then brings that down further. And again, this is all affecting your levelized cost of energy and your gen, uh, your annual generation output from the the, uh, the wind tunnel, the farm as a whole. So again, it's, it's, it's these trade-offs of an overall loss in output per turbine, which I think is what you'll see from Hexcon installations against this cost of um, reduced cabling, steel ins uh, installations and maintenance. So it's, I think at the moment, it was probably... It will we'll probably see Hexcon 
installations being more expensive. But as we see offshore wind turbines, and especially the platforms become more uh, commodified, then that's when um, the tipping point happens. And we see, actually, we can afford to have these redundant turbines. And that's what I mean, we've seen it in the solar sector. Once you want unit prices get so low, uh, you can have sort of large installations where uh, obviously you'll have certain units out of uh, operation at any given time. And it's the equivalent of bifacial panels. You know, you, 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 what, what you put a whole other panel facing down and just for reflected light. Well, that's going to cost too much, surely. But, but the net amount of energy that you yield is so much higher that it just doesn't cost too much. Um, I, I, I'm curious. I want to double check something about what the appeal of this hexagon is. So you're saying that the main appeal is that you have two turbines per you know units of supporting physical infrastructure, the platforms and so on. But isn't it actually pretty good that you can have two turbines? I mean, I know that there is reduced output because of the turbulence, but that's only the turbulence you get from being parallel. And if you plonk down a whole load of, if you if you put two individual turbines next to each other like that. When the wind turns, they wouldn't turn on a unified platform, so they'd no longer be parallel, so the turbulence would be much worse. Isn't this actually quite useful to get a lot more power per square meter of sea? And isn't that actually very important in some places like the North Sea? Because if you look at the map of North Sea offshore wind, it looks quite crowded. Yeah, to translate what you've just said, you're absolutely right. If if you did allow them to turn independently, there definitely would be much, lots of unpredictable behaviour. So when you design two together, you have to uh, put them rigid uh, with respect to each other. And by having a central uh, holding point, they, they do swing, but they swing, the whole unit swings. Um, I, I think, it, I think it, you wouldn't be able to do it another way. It would, just wouldn't work. But isn't that actually very important? I think yeah. As I mean, as the design goes, I think it is it is important. I don't think that yeah, it wouldn't work with your bearings. Um, the and again, it'd be an unnecessary cost in terms of any gains that could be made there. And I can't imagine there really would be any. Um, I think yeah, the the aim, as you said, Andres, is to increase the energy yield per sea area. Um, and the the primary way it will do that won't be through increasing. Um, uh, the, I mean, in terms of le levelized cost, it won't be increasing the amount of um, generation, but it'll be decreasing the number of the, the cabling and the, the foundations. Um, How big a turbine yeah. are they able to fit, Harry? I mean, at the moment, they don't look particularly large. Um, yeah, I think at the moment they're looking for sort of mid mid-sized turbines, so sort of the six sort of the six megawatt range, um, maybe slightly moving towards up towards the nine megawatts now as well. So, uh, so you, also you, you've got one floating platform supporting twelve megawatts and we've already got bigger turbines that on one floating platform can support more than that um all right less steel uh, uh, um yeah less steel and less build cost but yeah although I, I can't i can't imagine that i think i imagine hexcom will look to to rise up to the largest turbines available um and depending obviously on the cost benefit of doing that there are benefits you having... it, though. You, you've got a new platform because the platform size extends you've got more steel You've got a more powerful holding point required to moor it. You basically go into research mode all over again. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but potentially. I mean, it largely, I think a lot of this is just simply a case of scaling the um, the loading. Obviously, you can model these things pretty well now uh, in terms of fluid dynamics. But the um, uh, is yeah, I think there is benefit of having smaller turbines. I mean, we've seen some designs uh, for off proposed offshore wind farms where you're using loads of really small turbines instead of one large, large turbine purely due to the fact that you're, it enables you to capture lower wind speeds um, more consistently 
that I've and they haven't really about. taken off though and they, they haven't got they, they to the funding no. stage yet yeah yeah so so i think what what i'd be saying is i i think um the financial community is quite conservative and waits till uh, a design is, has, has proven itself in the market before they fund um, liberally, uh, uh, you know, uh, new, new designs. And we have to be in favour of the new designs getting to that point. And we have to uh, kind of applaud anything that uh, that may improve uh, wind. Um, but again, no bank is going to fund it till it's proven that it, it, it improves wind. Okay, yeah. so I mean, the, I, I think... the other interesting thing as well is, I mean, Hexcom are looking to go pub, uh, looking to go public in the next sort of few few months, few years. So, uh, I think that will be interesting to see how much in, uh, interest it sort of gathers on, on public markets. Okay, and so that's the issue. There's there's this issue, the, these stories, and five or six others, and in fact, a half a dozen shorts and some orders, all on um, www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click the energy button. Click the weekly analysis. If you want the work that we're we're really paid for uh, on forecasts and data, you can see every forecast that we've ever done, all available for sale, all for a single subscription price of four thousand six hundred dollars. Um, if you're interested in that, email Simon at rethinkresearch.biz. Um, if you're not interested in that, what you're doing listening to this podcast. Thank you. <laughs>